You're listening to Return Again, the podcast about Aliyah through the lens of Olim who have lived in Israel long enough to have perspective. I'm Goel Jasper, and my guest today is Rabbi Ken Spiro. Rav Ken grew up a Reformed Jew in New Rochelle, New York. As you'll hear, his Jewish life and childhood consisted of little more than Hebrew school, Passover seders, and Hanukkah presents. But at the end of high school, something interesting began to happen. So here we are, decades later, and Rabbi Ken Spiro has not only been living in Israel for close to 40 years, he's impacted the lives of Jewish people all over the world through his important work with Eish Torah. Also a tour guide and a podcaster himself, Rav Ken is a proverbial wellspring of information about Jewish and world history and what it all means for the Jewish people today. I had the opportunity to sit with him recently in his old city apartment in Jerusalem to return again to his Aliyah story. Before we get to my conversation with Rav Ken, I want to remind you to please subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you went to hear today's episode of Return Again, and feel free to leave a rating and review. Also, please visit our Facebook page, Return Again Podcast, and our Twitter feed, at Return Again Pod, and of course, tell all your friends who you think might be interested in hearing these interesting and inspiring stories. Okay, here's Rabbi Ken Spiro. Returning again. Rav Ken Spiro, very happy to be here. You know, the idea that I have a podcast here and I'm interviewing you is kind of interesting to me because you were like one of the pioneers of this, not podcasting necessarily, but like Torah tapes way back in the day were like the original podcasts. They were. <laughs> and you were right in the middle of the action and uh, your shirim your, your on Jewish history um, impacted me a great deal and so I'm a big fan and also uh, appreciated all the knowledge that you've well, that you've given. I don't know if I received it all, but all the knowledge that you've given over <laughs> over the years, I really appreciate it. So thanks for having me. My pleasure. So uh, as you know, we're talking about your Aliyah. So let's go way back. When's the first time the concept of Aliyah came to you? So I have to say I didn't do the normal path. I always tell people I went to college uh, BC before cell phones, <laughs> before computers, and before birthright. My parents were not Zionist. I never visited Israel. My parents didn't take us on a trip. I didn't go for my bar mitzvah. Uh, I had actually no plans ever to live in Israel. It was never on my radar. Um, you know, man proposes, God laughs. It's because of my personal journey back. I was raised reform, uh, you know, once a year Jews, keeping a little here, a little there, you know. Uh, again, not Zionist. So when I was in college, my mother, in a desperate attempt to get me to marry someone Jewish, heard Dennis Prager speak hmm. at their reform, the Reform Congregation Temple Israel of New Rochelle. I was born in Brooklyn, but I grew up in New Rochelle, New York. Um, and she walked up to him and said, how can I get my son to marry someone Jewish? Literally, she said yeah, those yeah, words. Yeah, yeah, Okay. I had a non-Jewish girlfriend for like three years in college, right. so she was kind of freaking out. Um, and he said, send, send him to me. And he was running with Joseph Telushkin, a place called the Brandeis 
camp institute out in Simi Valley in California, north of LA. It was sort of a kibbutz experience for 18 to 26 year olds where you learned part day and you did community projects and mm. it wasn't a religious program, it was traditional-ish. Um, he was the first person I ever met who could say anything intelligent about Judaism. Uh, so he kind of like got me, tweaked my interest. I didn't leave there religious at, at all for my senior year, but I was open when I, I was a Russian major. I went to Vassar undergrad and I was a Russian language and literature major in college. Um, I took seven years of Russian in high school and college, so I could read Tolstoy in Russian, but I couldn't ask for directions on a street. Because if you want to speak a language, you got to actually you know, live there. And at the time, it was the Soviet Union, and you couldn't just go for three months, a communist country, police state. So I enrolled as a graduate student to the University of Moscow, a master's degree program through Purdue University. And my plan was to go to business school after. But since I would have six months between my half a year in Russia and my fall semester starting in grad school, I decided I'm going to go to kibbutz, Ulpan. Never been to Israel, but I was interested. And, just because uh, of the prayer experience? Just, not because of the, I always I wanted to visit Israel. You know, I was gonna, I was had a plan to go to Israel for a few months, and my brother was going to graduate from med school. Thank God, someone's a doctor in the family. <laughs> and uh, we, we, I was going to go for a few months, hang out on kibbutz, pick grapefruits with some Danish volunteers, learn Hebrew, work on my suntan. My, I'd meet my brother. We'd then tour through a few places in Europe in the summer, and I'd go back to grad school, and he'd go off and become a doctor. Um, so when I went off to Russia, it was the Soviet Union, when it was illegal for a Jew to even own a book in Hebrew. You get arrested for trying to keep Shabbat. Wait, the, even like a, a novel in Hebrew was a problem? You, you, had, any, you had anything yeah, Jewish. Right. Our, my, like our prized possession. Yeah. Well, I, my roommate was a guy from Harvard, Jim Cohen. Our prized possession was a copy of uh, Exodus right. in, in Russian. Like I said, we had a Russian copy of Exodus, and we were going to give. The, we used to hang out with this. You know, we couldn't hang out with people in Moscow unless they were like KG, children of KGB members or Jews. Those are the only two people who didn't care about the because it was dangerous to hang out with foreigners. You know, uh, we had sure. some. We had a bunch of like girls we hung out with. Sometimes we weren't dating them or anything. We just went out with them occasionally. We and uh, I remember we handed them this. It was our big. We're going to give them this copy of Exodus. And as right. we're like getting on the train, we it was like a spy movie. We spent hours <laughs> with them, and then he like hands it to the door as the subway closes an hour later she calls us crying that the KGB called and said if, if the Americans give you anything else your father's gonna lose his job it was a copy of Exodus in Russian in Russian so they, they knew their stuff yeah yeah they, they and I would give them anything anyways it's not wow. I know it's not our topic but it was just an incredible experience because I ended up hanging out with any number of Russian Jews who had secretly taught themselves everything in Judaism where I knew nothing um, I, I learned Hebrew of my bar mitzvah. I didn't know what I was reading, but I could read the letters, but I forgot it, and I didn't know anything about anything. And these are people who'd become observant secretly with no books, keeping kosher with no food, like they ate cabbage and potatoes. There was no meat. There was no wine. There was no yeast. Oh. There was no bread. There was nothing. Um, and a lot of them were in refusal trying to get to Israel, some of them for up to 10 years. And I'm sitting here wandering or coming from America with my jeans and, you know, looking very American <laughs> and telling them, yeah, I'm going to Israel in a few months. And some of these people just looked at me, their jaws dropped like they'd been waiting for 10 years. And for me, it really didn't mean that much. And for them, it was this huge thing. And I, could, I should have written a book about it. I really regret not writing a book about my experience there. This was, you know, 1981. Um, but in the end... I spent some, like the first Jewish stuff I did. I did some at BCI, but like my first, one of my first, the first Shabbat I ever really had a proper Orthodox Shabbat was a secret Shabbat in this guy's apartment. It was his parents' apartment. The parents were hiding in the bedroom because it was illegal to have a Friday night dinner. 
Right. Um, and I was with like four Russian guys who were all Balei Tshuva, students of Eliyahu Esses. I brought a minion. I brought all these Jewish students for my program. So they actually had a minion of people. I didn't know how to daven, but we had a minion. And right. they were speaking Hebrew and giving divrei Torah. And, and, I was, and, and it was only a minion because they said they wanted a minion. No, they didn't you, say I just brought I said, Did you know what I, a minion I just was? Happened to, I did know that, yeah. I did oh, know okay. that. I brought enough people. I even, I even got some yeast because I was a foreigner and I baked the machala. You know, and I got so excited. <laughs> But I had all these experiences. First Sukkot, we snuck outside of Moscow, went to a sukkah. We were with all these famous Refusenik people that are now quite, you know, I mean, people like like Yuri Edelstein, who's yeah. now in the Knesset. I met him right. in Russia, people like that. Um, and I was, in the end, I basically said, if these people are willing to risk their lives to be Jewish like this, I'd already been turned on by Prager. Maybe there's got to be more to this Jewish stuff. So uh, I decided like, maybe I should do something different in Israel. My roommate from Vassar, from Scarsdale, uh, had been to Ace for a few weeks, and I when I, I reunited with him back in America before going off to Israel, and we both decided he's going to take time from grad school at Cornell, and I'm going to uh, instead of going to my kibbutz Olpan, I'm going to go study about Judaism, and he'd been Neisha Torah, so he said go to Neisha Torah. Interesting. With okay, me. hold on a second. Yeah, we got we got I got to call timeout. You you're going way too fast. Okay, <laughs> it's like crash course. Not crash course in Jewish history. It's like crash course in Ken Spiro's history. So I want to back up. I want to talk about your bar mitzvah. I want to talk about your childhood. Not all aspects of it, but you mentioned, you know, once, twice a year Jew kind of thing. But like, what kind of Jewish things were you exposed to as a kid? And did, did all of that become irrelevant when you got to college, or or did any of it stay with you? Do you have any fond memories of, of, um, some program that took place in in New Rochelle about Israel, or something you saw in the newspaper when, you know, maybe in '78? How old were you? In '78. In '78, I was uh, 19 years old. Okay, so like the peace treaty, like did that mean anything to you? Like. All of this stuff. Where were you in your Jewishness? Yeah, so when we were very little, my father got drafted. He's a doctor. We got drafted in the U.S. Air Force. We lived in Casablanca, Morocco. Hmm. I just came back from there last week. I hadn't been in almost 60 years. Um, we even took off from the what used to be the U.S. Air Force Base, which is now a... Uh, Nuasur base, Nuasur Airport in, in, in Casablanca. Oh, wow. My parents went to, Mar to Israel then in 1962. They didn't take us. They just went because they could get these free flights. They did a lot of traveling. It's a great place to see Europe from. Okay. Um, but that was their only exposure to Israel. Their one-time trip. The next time they came back was when I was in Israel in 1982. Right. 20 and, years and, later. And it's not like there were things from that trip in your home. No, no. We had, a, we had a few pictures in a photo album. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, okay. reform. Again, yeah, yeah. I mean, I could do a class. I'm a historian. Reform <laughs> Judaism was actually anti-Zionist until post-Holocaust. Right. And when I was in Temple Israel in the Rochelle, we're talking about 60s and early 70s, reform was not hardcore Zion. They were pushing Zionism. There was some stuff on Israel. I don't remember anything. I don't remember anything about my after-school Hebrew school education. I just remember it being incredibly unpleasant, boring, and meaningless. So it wasn't like I was inspired. Although I did go all the way through to 12th grade. Almost everyone dropped out after Bar Bat Mitzvah. Right. By 12th grade, there was no more school and no more Sunday school. But I would go and help in the office. I don't know why. Your parents um, didn't force you to? No, it was totally volunteer. They wow. had to, get, make it, to make it through Bar Mitzvah, and that's when most people retired. But we, like, we'd go... We sort of, sort of fast, sort of fast on Yom Kippur. Went a little bit on Rosh Hashanah. You know, it's the one time the rabbi saw the congregation. They opened up a whole big special parking lot on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Right. Today, I laugh thinking about that. 
on Passover, we had a Seder. We had, you know, I would eat ham and cheese and matzah on Passover. We would, couldn't delicious? have bread, but we would, you know, we could have, we didn't keep kosher <laughs> at all. We didn't have a Christmas tree or anything. We had Hanukkah presents. You know, we yeah. had the basic, yeah. we were very little. My parents had like Shabbat camp. We had a Friday night dinner. We were little. They stopped doing that very early on. But I remember having like a Friday night dinner thing. My parents were not raised religious at all. My grandparents were sort of kosher, but not religious. The last religious people in my family, my great grandparents. Okay. All my grandparents were born in America. Um, in the early 20th century, they, they, they were, yeah. So it wasn't, there was nothing Jewish or Israeli right. in the experience. I wasn't thinking, I remember certain events. I remember the Yom Kippur War. You know, I was not. I was. I was already a teenager. I remember right. it was like 13 years old. I remember my mother crying the whole time uh, on Yom Kippur because she was very upset. You know, this is a generation post Holocaust. My parents were alive during that, so they were kind of freaking out. But I had no connection to Israel. No, it was nothing. There was no interest, no plan. Never met any Israelis. I think the first person I remember was in, meeting with Israeli was the tour guide the man and uncle took when they went to Israel. <laughs> when I was probably like. 20 years old. I think it's right. the first Israeli I'm conscious of. I'm sure I met Israelis before, but I don't remember meeting any of them. So there was nothing, nothing. There was okay. no connection. So let's go back to meeting up with your former roommate at Aish. Yeah. So Cliff Wachtel from Scarsdale, uh, who, again, we were roommates at Vassar, and he went off to, when I was off in Russia, he was at Cornell getting his MBJD. And he had, uh, even though I got turned on to the Jewish thing a little before, he went off in between, he went off after senior year at Vassar, and he graduated, he graduated and ended up in Israel and ended up in Eshatar. I don't remember how he got there, although there was a couple guys in Scarsdale who he knew had already, were already studying in Esh. I think there was like a Masora there, like a little chain of tradition of one bringing the other. So he spent a couple weeks there. He didn't become religious, but he was also turned on. Right. So I remember sitting and talking to him about, uh, you know, and I already kind of decided maybe I wanted to do something more meaningful and go to kibbutz, and he suggested Eshet Torah, and we decided. We didn't fly there together. He flew out before I did by maybe a week or 10 days, and I joined, uh, you know, my plan was to go for three months. I was going to go. It was. In, I arrived in February 1982, which means in a few more months I'll be here 40 years. Hmm. Um, it's a pretty unbelievable thought. Considering I only planned to come for three months. <laughs> and again, the plan was my brother would come, and we would meet, and then we would... Go to Europe. Go to Europe, and then I'd go back to grad school, and I'd go to grad, and he'd go be a doctor. Um, when I got to Aish, when I was Rabbi Noach Weinberg, who he wasn't, you know, this was a Lithuanian Haredi-style Balchuva yeshiva. He was not anti-Zionist at all, although the, the, definitely the hashkafa of Aish from the rabbis, who were mostly these Lithuanian Haredi guys, was pretty negative towards the state of Israel, towards the army. I was always rebellious, so I kind of befriended certain tutors in yeshiva who were Dati Lumi guys, like who lived in interesting places like Hebron and Harbracha. Right. So not that I did, I was definitely, my hashkafa was early on, uh, definitely the Haredi world for sure, the, the, the dress and everything. I, you know, after three months I decided, I got really turned on to being an activist for the Jewish people. I'm very, mm. I'm very, I was always very idealistic and I wanted to make a difference. I didn't really want to go to business school anyway that badly, it was just something to do. Um, uh, so after I basically said, "Hey, I don't know enough." After three months, I need to learn some more. And B, you know, if, if you know, Rabbi Noah Weinberg was all about you know changing the world. I said, if we have this unique role to play in the world, and this unique responsibility as this little people with an incredible weight on our shoulders, why would I go be, want to go to business school? So I said, I'm going to just. 
I'm going to defer another like half a year or something. I deferred from my graduate school, my parents. You, you already knew where you were going. Yeah, yeah. What, what school was it? I was going to go to Rutgers, the business right. school. Right. Um, and and uh, I, def so I deferred for another half a year. And I decided to stay a little longer. And after, but I already decided I really want to go anyway. I did go to France with my brother the day the oh, war okay. in Lebanon broke out in June 1982. Yeah. My parents begged me, don't go back to Israel. I went anyway, and he went on to England, and I just spent a couple weeks in France with him and then went back to Israel. And uh, yeah, I just, I just ended up... I had a brother who came a year later. He was at Cornell, did three years of architecture school, and he right. took a leave of absence, came, stayed, and didn't graduate from architecture school, became a rabbi at age. Interesting, really? And then I had a sister who was at Vassar also. I had two brothers who went to Cornell, and then my sister and I went to Vassar. Um, she had finished her freshman year. She came to visit in the summer. My father warned her. He said, you make sure she gets on the plane and comes home. <laughs> And two weeks later, she said, I'm not going home, I'm staying. And my parents freaked out. They had a, my father was screaming on the phone. You know, he called back the next day and apologized. Right. But my parents ended up having three of their four children become religious in three years. And, and your siblings are still here? Uh, well, my brother went off and did many different Aish branches. And oh, eventually okay. came, he came back. He's now back for the last two years. Yeah. My older brother, who was the doctor, right. was like engaged to a, a Catholic nursing student. I mean, she was a Catholic medical student, uh, and ended up, we put so much pressure on him that he broke it off and ended up marrying a Jewish lawyer instead. To have four kids raised reform in America and all four married Jewish is statistically is statistically uh, basically impossible. Yeah. It's basically impossible. <laughs> um, just doesn't happen. And my parents, uh, my mother then spent the next quarter of a century calling all the parents as kids who came to Israel to go to yeshiva and seminary and tell them you should support them 100%. It's the best thing you ever did. Wow. And it's really funny. You know, they had, they, had their, they had their issues about what do you do for a living and things like that. Not with me so much because I graduated college. But um, they made Aliyah themselves eight and a half years ago. So they okay. Live, they so so you're, you're in Aish. Um, you're in there for a few months and you're saying, okay, I got I to gotta learn more. That, that, that I want to go back to that point, because at that point, you had not yet said to your parents, "I'm staying in Israel." You were just you you want you were still curious, you still wanted to understand, right? That that's basically yeah, yeah. where I mean, we basically, are. Basically, I was basically at this point just saying I need to stay and study longer. I was ba I, I kept deferring and deferring after like this after the second deferment, or I just dropped out. I said I don't want to do this. My plan was still, I assumed I would be, even with Aish at the time, that generation of Aish guys were all guys who were like soldiers in the army to go do outreach, Kiruv. So we assumed we'd all be going out to branches or different projects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm one of the few who didn't. I actually never left. Um, my, 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 uh, and my sister, my next door neighbor here, also she never left. We stayed, but my younger brother did. Most of the people I went to Yeshiva with, Ended up going out. Most of them didn't stay in Asia Torah long term. That's a separate talk. But um, but yeah, I just by default I ended up. But I wasn't. I didn't make Aliyah then. Right. I came as a student. I wasn't planning to stay. I was an American citizen. Um, I wasn't particularly Zionistic at the time. It wasn't like I had this ideological connection to the land of Israel. It was just that I was here. Um, and I was living in a little ghetto of English speakers. It wasn't great for the Hebrew either. Unlike my Russian thing where I got immersion and my Russian right. was really, really good, like perfectly accentlessly fluent when I left. I also studied seven years before. Um, I didn't, my Hebrew was not good. And, 
it was it was just not and it was basically pretty much uh, never uh, pretty much in the Haredi kind of yeshiva world uh, not until when I after studying four years full-time I already decided you know I'm basically staying but I still was still a student in yeshiva right. then I got then I, I started dating and, and I got married to a woman from uh, modern orthodox woman from London who, right. who had come on her own was living actually right down the street over here really right down the street over here in an apartment with two other girls um, who came on her own because she wanted to be in Israel because her family was very you know, like, like you know, the, you know, the definition of a Zionist is someone who lives abroad and gives money to the Jewish agency to get someone else to live in Israel. Her mother was the treasurer of Wheatso, England, but they oh. weren't planning to live here. You're saying literally in this case. Yeah, that yeah. Was, that was a they were very Zionistic, yeah. so she wanted to be here. So, uh, and we decided this was kind of neutral territory. She didn't want to go to America. I don't want to go to England. At least right. initially, we're not going to go unless a, we open up a branch and I go somewhere. Yeah. But um, so then. When I got married in 1985, so then we made we we got married in Israel, and we went a little world tour, went to the states and then to the UK, and from the UK we made Aliyah. Right. This is before Nefesh Benefesh. Yeah, yeah cool. so. way way before. I have to ask you a question. At the time you're growing up, nothing in the world is more anti-Israel than Russia. And you decide you're gonna you're gonna possibly even build your whole career around Russian and the Russian language and and spending time in Russia. Does that strike you as odd or perfect or something? Like what what, <laughs> what was, is that? Yeah, it, why the Russian? Yeah, I studied I studied three years of French in uh, junior high school and I just didn't like it and the teachers were terrible. I did Russian at the time because in in America you had basically a choice of two languages. How to, you know, if I could do it sure. again, I would Spanish do French. I would do I would do Span I would do Spanish and 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 Mandarin. Huh. You know, those are the two languages I would do in terms of living in America, Spanish. And but at the time I was thinking international business. Happens to be in New Rochelle High School, there was a Czechoslovakian Holocaust survivor who is still right. alive, I believe. His name is Jay Summers, who was in a, the camps and liberated by the Soviet wow. army, which is how he learned his Russian. Uh, and so he spoke, I think, seven, eight languages, and they had Russian in my high school. And I thought, this is really exotic. And this was during you know, the Cold War and the perestroika was just starting. I said, yeah. And I said, this is going to be great for business. Because no Americans, till today I meet Russians, they can't believe, and my Russian accent is really good. Um, my, uh, you know, my Russians hear me, I speak to Russians all the time, and they go, where are you from, or where are your parents from? And I say, Interesting. Because you, know, you don't have Americans who speak Russian, who don't have Russian parents who weren't born in the former Soviet Union. But I was just doing it strictly. I took Japanese also in, oh, okay. in college. I didn't, I didn't get anywhere near as far as my Japanese, but I figured those were the two up-and-coming. Japan was what, a huge... So you're economy. doing it for business reasons. I was totally thinking business. I'm going to do. I want to do international business. I like traveling, so I'll just learn two <laughs> languages because someone who speaks three languages is trilingual, two languages is bilingual, and one language is American. Right. So <laughs> I'm going to be hopefully be at least trilingual. So I ended right. up being trilingual, just not with Japanese. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So so you you get here in '82. You go to Aish. You immerse yourself more in the world of Torah. And the next thing you told me was 85. So, so in the years 82 to 85, are you thinking, I'm building a life in Israel, or are you just in the moment? I'm not thinking uh, building a life in Israel. I don't, I don't really remember what was going on in my brain, but it was definitely not that I'm definitely 100% be here. If an opportunity had come up, now I, wasn't, I wasn't 
looking to leave necessarily. I don't right. remember. I don't remember. I don't remember thinking that. I remember like kind of liking Israel and being happy to stay, but it wasn't like I was deeply attached, having not grown up, having not done the army yet at the time or anything like that. And my status, even after I got married, was called Alefachad, which is which was a temporary resident. Which means that you're like an Israeli. I had a, I had a Tudad Zahut number, I had an identity number, but I couldn't vote and I didn't serve in the army. It wasn't I had an objection to the army, but I didn't want to do it at that time because mm-hmm. I wasn't sure what it was going to be. And also because I came to the country as, at 20, as a 22 year old, they would retroactively figure out and put me in the army for three years being newlywed. Right. And that would have been just like a disaster. You know, most Israelis, you do the army, you have your family here, you got your parents, you of got course. your siblings. So I said, I was totally, I wasn't anti, I was already, in, even in Aish, where there's a lot of pressure, don't do the army, that kind of stuff, I was already much more leaning to that. I was definitely more open to everything about Israel than most, you know, the rabbis and everyone. But I said, I'll wait a little bit longer, see how it works out, and I wait till after a few kids, and I get a little older, and then I'll, get, I'll have to do less time, which is what happened. Did you ultimately do the army? Yeah, 19, during the, during the first Gulf War. Right. We made Aliyah. We changed 90? our status. Yeah, 1990. We changed our status. I remember this. It was a, we should have. This would have been. We should have filmed this. We went into Misrat Pnim in Yerushalayim, right? And we said we wanted to make Aliyah, and they didn't believe us because, like Dafka at that time, everyone they said they said, "Are you kidding? You're the only people in the country trying to do this. Everyone is trying to get passports to leave or get right. out of the country." They called in all the people from all the offices. They said, "We have someone making. Look at this these people. Guy. They're making Aliyah." So we officially changed. I'm already living in the country. I'd already been here for you know f- five years, uh, but we officially changed status, and I got drafted immediately. Within one month, I got a Tzavgius. And what did you do? And I got it for a year. Okay. And I and I and I contested it. I said I can't do this. I had I was already I already had three kids, right. and I had the so I said I can't. Let, my wife is going to deal with three kids by myself with no family. Her parents weren't there. Mine weren't here. I said you can't. Then it was very arbitrary because a friend of mine had three kids and he got like so. I ended up getting like a hundred days instead of of right. the army. Okay, two weeks basic training. Right, it was like ridiculous basic training. Like two weeks, most people do, you know, the basic, basic training is two months. And if you're in a combat unit, it's eight, nine months. I mean, I had right. all my kids, four of my five kids were in combat units, and, or three in combat units, one in the Navy, one in Shirut Lomi. So I know what, I know, I know, I saw what they went through after. Um, but then I ended up volunteering, even with no proper training, I volunteered to be in a combat unit. Which after, is, which, after the 90 days. After, the hun, after my 100, 100 day days, thing, 100 where they, days. basically two weeks of basic training, then it threw me right into Milouim. Okay. In Khatira, guarding an ammunition base. Right. I got out once for 24 hours and once for 48 hours and 100 days. And that's, that was oh it. That gosh. was it. And uh, I got, they, uh, and they got out for the only ones they got out for like the two days was I had my brother got married. They let me go home for the weekend for the wedding. Wow. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Um, but it happened to be the best Ulpan I ever did. The army. Yeah, because they had no pun in Eshatara, but it was no, you're living, you have to speak. You're living yeah, in a yeah. ghetto. You're living in the old city, which was a little Anglo-Saxon ghetto. And in Yeshiva, where everyone's speaking English. Till today, this guy's in Eish, whose Hebrew is really bad, and they've been here as long as I have. <laughs> it's actually shockingly bad Hebrew. Wow, um, interesting. But then I did 12 years of, of Miluim, which is also great. I had for one, for 30 days every year, I just was the only, it was a hundred, well, once it was all Arabs. Because it was all like, that's another story. But, um, but all Arabs, Arabic, in Arabic speaking, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, was, I went to Milouin with the Druze unit. And, Interesting. And Turkessian officer and, and Bedouin trackers. So there was like 
three. That's amazing. Well, what was your job when you were with them? I was just a combat soldier. I was on. We used to patrol. We I was in Southern Command. We used to patrol the Egyptian border, uh, Gaza Strip. We used to escort the convoys into uh, into Gaza, the right. Jewish the Jewish settlement in Gaza, and uh, Jordanian border south of the Dead Sea, from the right. from the lower part of the Dead Sea south. That's what we did. That was our cov. Um, and I was a. I did. You know what? Patrol stuff like Magist. I was a machine gunner on a Batash which was this before they had Humvees. Right. It was just a big flat open truck with two, yeah. you know, Belgian 7.652 caliber machine guns. Say, on like, it. You, you see like in South Africa. Yeah, yeah, right. you just patrol, you're like sitting yeah. dock, no protection. Yeah, yeah, you're just yeah, sitting yeah. on this bench and for eight hours in the heat, and, you know, and patrolling the border. But it was fantastic Hebrew. That, that's where my Hebrew got <laughs> much, much, much better. Where um, did you and your wife set up shop? Well, first, I, le- I was learning, and the first year I was married, we learned and... We're learning part-time because, uh, you know, Shana Rishon, I wanted to learn. And I was also working in Eshet Torah as the registrar for the yeshiva. Hmm. And we lived in the old city. We lived for, we rented two years an apartment in the old city. At that time, all the Esh guys rented apartments in the old city. Would right. that they had all bought there. There'd be a lot of Esh families living in the old city today when it was yeah. affordable to buy. Right. And then um, moved to Harnof. For, that was the up-and-coming neighborhood at the time sure. in the 80s late 80s we thinking of buying there but we didn't really see anything we liked and um, my now ex-wife's Hevra uh, from Bnei Akiva the religious Zionist youth movement were all English living in like either crazy places like like Alumin by the Gaza Strip right. or uh, Renana or they were living in Givad Ze'ev which was a new settlement had just been founded like five years before right. she had a lot of friends there and at the time, it was a little place. It had, you know, a few thousand people living in it and, like, one synagogue. And yeah. so uh, we went to look out there. I didn't like it because it was a little far out, and it also was uh, not not religious enough for me. Okay. And uh, but we ended up moving there, and we, we bought a house. We lived in the house for 10 years. Well, I think 10, yeah. And then we, then we bought a bigger house, Big, big American-style house, you know, three floors, 11 rooms, two-car wow. garage, big garden. And yeah, I ended up living, we ended up living 27 years in, in, in Zev. And Zev ultimately, after those 27 years, it has everything. It has really yeah, well, religious it's people. It's a yeah, tremendous Yeah, now it's, now it's becoming actually very Haredi. They just yeah. come, the mostly Haredi. It has a whole area that's very, very like, like shtetl, ghetto-ish. Where just to get in, you have to like go through a committee. They have to prove your like religiousness. Right. Uh, but the main part of Givadze, which is quite large now, it's 17,000 people. It like quadrupled in size since I was there. Has fifty-two synagogues now, easily, as opposed to one when I was there. Um, it, now it's basically Haredi light guys, guys who who are, you know, they walk the walk, but they want to live in neighborhoods where they're not being spied on. Their wives can wear high heels. They can have smartphones and jobs and cars yeah. and not be like, get their kids thrown out of school. There's a lot right. of issues of living in these very, very religious neighborhoods with a lot of conformity. And if you don't toe the line, it's going to be bad news. So, Did you ever feel conformity pressure being at Aish? Yeah, at Aish there was definitely tons so of pressure. So how did you deal with that? I just ignored it. I, didn't, I did wear a black hat at my wedding. I remember one of the big rabbis who was the... Smicha Rabbi Deish, he had the biggest smile on his face when he saw I was wearing that black hat. <laughs> like, finally, success. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I jokingly say, by the way, I don't know, I might get in trouble for this. And I used to be Haredi, but I did tshuva. <laughs> 
because I evolved my, I, my, it's part of the experience of living in Israel is yeah. my hashkafa, my worldview about, about my Jewish identity. Part of it is just being Balchuva, you go through a process. Balchuvas, the, all the Balchuva activity, all the Kiruv activity is Haredi Yeshivas. Basically. There's no, there's Machon Meir, there's right. nothing else. So you don't get a chance to even experience any other worldview. I, I distinctly remember uh, arguing with people like taking the Haredi position, and now I, I would be in the exact other side of the argument that I was arguing against. I'm talking about 30 years ago. Uh, that was my own personal journey. That you know, evolving. You know, you always part of. I'm no longer. I would, I'm technically a Balchuva, but I've been religious for a lot longer than I've been secular. And I've living in Israel and going through seeing the the religious world and seeing the religious nationalist world and seeing what life is like. I've evolved my own worldview and I always felt I always tell in Asia Torah where I'm still involved a little bit still um, the, all the guys come to me when they want another opinion because everyone else is everyone else is like a Haredi I'm the only, like the only it's funny the Hanhala them, a lot of the people who run Asia Torah now are actually Dati Lumitzioni people but the actual yeshiva is still very much a Haredi so guys come to me and ask me questions about doing things like the army Right. Uh, religious nationalism stuff because you can't get it from anywhere else in the yeshiva. I'm the guy who even challenges other rabbis to debates on Zionism and stuff like that. Um, so where, where do you think, where do you think, I, don't, I didn't realize we were going to get into this, but why not? Where do you think that whole issue is going in terms of acceptance of the, the state of Israel as being relevant to the eventual geula being completed and, and those kinds of things like, like based on what you've been in that environment for 40 years now have you seen any evolution any i don't want to use the word progress because who's to judge what's progress and what's not progress but have you seen any change over the years no actually the early years of the state the reality is is the haredi community of israel was more you know, there was right. This, the more, famous story of Panovich Yeshiva yeah, flying, flying, flying. Yeah, because flag. it was a survival mode, and and you know, I think now because of money, politics, and comfort, people have drawn the lines. And uh, I have the discussion often about things like army service and supporting the state with people. And I found most of the uh, the Yeshiva guys I talk to, I always jokingly say they seem to be created in a factory. They right. often, they, they almost all of them will say the same things to me when I push them on. I don't, I don't know, this is a whole, we could have a different podcast on this. <laughs> I'm happy to have this discussion. I do classes on it all the time. But when I push them past a certain comfort point of just the pat answers they throw out that are all kind of canned and, you know, that are not really, I don't think really that legitimate, they always fall back to it. But the Godolium say, and then I'd say, well, who's Godel? You know, everyone has different Godolium. And, yeah. And, and uh, so I don't, I don't find that. Whereas, whereas I find that there's generally a, a certain, like within the Haredi world, and I always tell people, American Haredim, I said, you're not Haredim. You're, 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 guy, you're yeshiva. You're, you're American yeshiva guys. Right. I said, Israeli Haredim are not you guys. First of all, you wouldn't even be able to marry into these people because they're right. like a completely different Bria, a different creation. They have a very different, and even with them, they're multifaceted. There's certain of them are more, you know, you get Naturia Karta. These people are evil, in my opinion. They show up at you know rallies. They show up outside, you know, um, you know, APAC and with the PLO. You, it's like standing with Adolf Hitler at a concentration camp right. and signs, you know, saying we support the Nazis. 
you know, this is just evilness. But then you have people like Satmar, who was still fighting a battle, I believe, was over, over. It's now been over for 70 plus years, but still like denying the Jewish state and calling yeah. it the act yeah. of the devil. But I, I don't see personally reconciliation. Sadly, it's a big point of mine that we have to, you know, that the, the Haredi world's existence is economically unsustainable in this country. That has become such a huge percentage of the country. Things have to move. Well, there's know, also the spiritual side. Like, as a student of history, you know that like things are best for the Jewish people when we're unified. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> so but that's that is my absolute pet peeve. I even founded a website that I've yet to launch called Junite.org. It's called Two Jews, it. Three Opinions, One Destiny. Right. And I said we have to make a paradigm shift within the Jewish world to focus on the things that unite us. There's people who want us dead and hate our guts, and we're arguing about the stupidest things. And if you put a religious nationalist person, think about it, we're 0.2% of the world's population, and Orthodox Jews are a much smaller percent of that. <laughs> right. They're like a quarter of that, maybe, if you take Israel, you know, altogether. And you, so you're talking about like a fraction of the world, and you put a Haredi guy in, you put you put a, a, you put a Hashomer Atzair guy in with a, a Haredi guy from Meisharim, and they actually can get past like staring each other down and talking. They have a remarkable amount in common. You put a Dati Lumi guy in, who except for a few little issues like their clothing, their kippah, and a few attitudes towards the state and stuff like that, and maybe what kashrut they keep, they have like 99.999% of their worldview is in common. Right. And they're going to focus on the point. Zero, 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 one. But it's not that. You put a Bells and a, you put a Bells and a, and a Vizhnitz guy together, they're going to fight. That's just, that's just human nature. That's, and you see, so how do you deal with it in your own life? How do you deal with it? I always focus on when I'm arguing with my Jews, saying this is my brother or sister. I don't have to like them, but i got to love them. Right. <laughs> and, and, I work and on it very hard. I work on it very hard. Israel is very challenging. Israel, it's very challenging to live in a country where there, no, where there, where there aren't millions of non-Jews to like, dilute the energy here. Yeah. Everyone's in your face, and all your neighbors are Jewish. Which, is, which creates all kinds of interesting challenges in terms of living here and raising your kids here and staying religious here and everything else here. It's a really very much different situation. You know? Right. So let's, um, let's shift a little bit. Talk about your kids, if that's okay. I don't, yeah. I don't yeah. want to talk about your kids specifically. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about what has the experience of having kids been for you in this country? Talk about, um, you know, given that you sort of play in different worlds or you have at least over the course of your career and maybe there was a, a certain uh, a certain paradigm you had in mind for education for your kids and then ultimately how it played out where your kids are today talk about raising kids in this country from your yeah, perspective that's, that's, the, that's very challenging and the pushback I get from friends of mine who stayed in America who are more yeshivish is precisely on that issue there's far more kids. I'm talking about in the Balchuva world. Balchuvas yeah. have unique challenges. I always say you can't take the ball out of the chuva, and you bring <laughs> that in, and your kids pick up on it. You're not. And being Balchuva and being foreigners growing living in Israel, you're not really. The parents aren't acculturated into the larger society. It makes a big difference. Man, that makes a huge difference, and it's very challenging because you don't really. You tend to, unless you really try and make an effort to immerse yourself in. Like you go live in some yeshuv somewhere and you're the only Americans there, the only mixed, in our case it was mixed British-American couple amongst all these Israelis, you really tend to gravitate towards living in your little shtetl. Right. That's the way, that's the way foreigners tend to do it when living in Israel, which is natural because it's a language ability, it's a cultural comfort thing. So we always lived and, and we never interacted with, like socially with Israelis so much. 
uh, and that affects how your kids get. I mean, your kids, unlike unlike myself, they're you know they 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 were raised in an environment where the home language was English. Mm-hmm. Um, although my ex-British wife used to say, "You don't speak English; you speak American." <laughs> but it's just more or less the same language, just slightly different accent, mostly the same words. Um, but that that. Uh, so my kids were initially raised in an English-speaking environment. We actually made a decision with my kids. We forced them to only speak English in the home. They were not allowed to speak Hebrew in the house. So when you're all around the table, no they Hebrew. can't schmooze in no Hebrew. No Hebrew. And, we never, and, and they, you know, they all, they all protested, especially my middle daughter. She, she hated it the most. I have five kids. I have a, a, a boy who's 35 now. I'm, he's a man. He's an yeah. architect. His wife's an architect. They live in Moshavorim. I have a son who just got married at 33 to a, a woman from Sagot, who's one of 12 kids. Wow. He's a he's a he's a nurse. He was a combat. My oldest son was a medic and a sniper in the in, in paratroopers. My second oldest son was a combat medic in Golani, mm-hmm. which is a big rivalry in Israel. And it's funny we had in the same bedroom together. The paratroopers <laughs> in Golani always fight. And a middle daughter who is now 30, who is, uh, did national service in a center for kids with cancer and is now an oncology nurse at Tel Shomer, and she lives in Modi'in and she's married with four kids. She got married at 19 years old and I have identical twin girls who uh, one is a nutritionist, just graduated. She was a combat medic also in Karakal. Uh, she's married to a, an, a a guy whose father's Israeli, but he grew up in Toronto. And her twin sister is engaged to a boy from Australia. Interesting. Yeah, and she's a hippie farmer. Really? Jewelry maker. Farmer? Yeah, she's a farmer. She works on a farm. I mean, that's... I yeah. think that's what we're supposed to be doing in this yeah, land. She's after the real, all, right? she's the most she's the most Zionist of all of us. Yeah. I'm telling you. Um, so what was education? They like? all so they so first of all we raised them as a, just a rule. We raised them that <coughs> unless you have friends over who don't speak. English, they have to speak Hebrew in the house. They all yelled and screamed about it. I mean, so don't, don't speak Hebrew. Hebrew they have to speak English. English. Yeah. yeah, they all yelled and screamed about it. It was it was a joke. English, Pinglish. Whenever they started speaking <laughs> Hebrew, we go English. They go English, Pinglish, and then they all grew up and they all came to us and thanked us. Of course, because my kids are perfectly bilingual. Yeah. they can read and speak. You get a lot of the kids here. The, the the kids, a lot of our friends who are parents are perfect native English speakers. The kids don't speak English right. or speak badly. Can't read. And if you got to speak any language in the world, you want to speak English. Yeah. Um, my middle daughter, ironically, who's the one who protested the most, marries an Israeli, Yemenite. And uh, she decides she's going to speak to her kids in English. And then after like the first kid was born, she decides her husband's going to speak to the kids in English. Wow. And his English was okay, and now it's really good. Wow. And now they both speak to their kids in English. And their kids, although what they skill. have the accent, are all bilingual. Which is really That's a funny. huge thing for them. So that, but we decided also, you know, I was more aiming towards, and it's also because we ended up living in Givad Ze'ev, which didn't have any Haredi infrastructure. Uh, had I stayed in Harnof, we probably would have sent our kids to more haredi schools. But unlike right. in America or England, where you can go to very religious schools, which cost a fortune, in Israel they're free. That's the big, the big plus. But the Haredi school system has zero secular education. Past, past rudimentary and mathematics. And so you consciously made a decision. And I just, I, no I, one thing I took and I did not like from in the from the Haredi system from the beginning was this: it's a black and white zero sum game of 100% Torah and basically, and then you're learning the rest of your life kind of thing. I never saw that as something I wanted to do personally. I wanted to do education and outreach, but I was not going to sit and learn my whole life. And uh, I wanted my kids to have a base an education so they could decide what they want to do. So we ended up putting our kids in a the religious national school system, although we didn't want to send them to this, the state religious school in Givad Ze'ev. 
which was an unbelievable, as I say in Yiddish, surus, because first of all, we had, to get, we had these massive battles with the, Mots, the, the, of, the Ministry of Education every year and with the Ministry of Education for Jerusalem to get them in certain schools. We wanted like serious Dati Lumi schools. Uh, we, had to do, we had to arrange travel. In other words, they just wanted you to send to the local school. Yeah, yeah, What's and it was the problem, whole, right? Whole, religious Zionists is religious Zionists. They, were, they the would problem? refuse you. This whole procedure you had to go through it was a, such a pain. Wow. And then we had to do carpooling and arrange yeah, for yeah. like buses. It was very expensive. Well, I mean, compared to America, it's nothing. But <laughs> but it was a big, big, schleppy, difficult thing to do. And then I went for my younger kids. They actually started a sort of base Yaakov school in Givadze, my twin girls. Right. Sort of like a Sephardi based Yaakov school. Uh-huh. We were the we we you mean, I was like one a of the guys more open minded. No 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 not at all. It was just oh, like just base Yaakov mostly Sephardi kids because most yes. of the religious kids in Givadzev were Sephardi kids. Right. And um, we just it's like it's like being a mashkiach in a restaurant but not willing to eat in it. I said I got involved in creating the school because I thought it'd be great for the community to have like more school options. Yeah. So we makadesh our daughters to it. They happened to be the only girls who the only kids who went from first grade to sixth grade. The school never didn't survive. Wow. They went all six years to this school. Um, and it didn't turn out to be the best experience because it tended to be very narrow, rigid, right. and kind of a combination of very, very, very Haredi and very Sephardi. So a lot of like very emotional and it was hard to describe. But if you live in that world, you know what I'm talking about. It, it turned out, and they were very, they're tough girl. I have two Scorpios who don't have yeah. any, they, they have no... They have no patience for BS, even when they're little, little girls. So <laughs> it didn't go well for them. Um, but they they graduated that school. But it was a big. The biggest challenge was the school system, getting my kids through it. And then they wanted to when they want because once your kids are formed by their you know when they're little they are formed by their parents when they get out of their once they're out of the house starting in kindergarten, the peers play a huge role in who they hang out with. So my kids went through that system. And, uh, you know, it's very different from the Haredi school system, which makes learning everything. Right. The Dati schools don't. Their biggest weakness is a lot of them make learning a subject. So it takes a lot of the gishmach out of it, as they say, which mm-hmm. definitely affects how your kids take to it. Um, yeah, definitely. They all came out in different places. So, so, you know, someone once asked me, I want to I make Aliyah, but my gosh, the education system, how do you deal with it? And what I say to them, what I said to, the, to this one person was, don't look at the micro, look at the macro. Don't, don't look at the day-to-day school because it's ugly. It, it's, I mean, yeah. I'm still going through. I have, I have eight kids. The youngest is 11. The oldest is 24. So, so I'm, I'm also seeing the whole thing, basically. And the day-to-day is ugly. But I also look at how my older kids are turning out. Yeah. Not bad. Like, yeah. they're turning out fine. So the macro is fine. I don't know how. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how they turn out fine. But they do. And, and you found that to be the case as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah. First of all, there's, there's certain plot. There's, you know, people want to make Aliyah with their kids who are like teenagers. It's very yeah, risky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I tell people, first of all, the biggest Mila, the biggest positive this is my kids all have Jewish software in their brains. <laughs> they think in Hebrew. It's their first language. Their calendar I remember the first time my son saw Santa Claus, he asked who the rabbi was in the red outfit. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, my kids are more Jewish in certain ways than the most Haredi people living in America because their basic software operating platform is the land of Israel. And because unlike the Haredi system, which doesn't connect you to the land of Israel, when Haredi kids go off, they have nothing to keep them here. I, mean, I have kids who are not religious, but they're very connected to the land of Israel. Um, 
So, and my, and, and meanwhile, other members of my family have kids who were raised very Haredi. They just leave the country. They're out. They're gone. They, they're not, not, not Jewishly connected. If they go off, they don't want to know about Judaism. They, certainly don't, they don't give a damn about Israel. They speak Hebrew, but it's yeah. just like a side thing for them. So the fact that their calendar, their holidays, everything about them, their music, what they're really culturally connected to. Okay, it's secular Israel, but it's... Fantastic. It's a, that's such a positive thing. And, 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 and. There is no comparing an Israeli... Again, I'm talking about the Dati Lumi system of kids yeah. who do the army and national service. There's no, com there's no comparison to an American 21-year-old to an Israeli 21-year-old. <laughs> it's like an American 21-year-old is a baby. You know, and, and an Israeli 21-year-old generally is in a very different place. They've done three years of the army. A lot of the good ones have done combat units, like my kids. Their whole attitude towards life. By the time they get to college, they don't do this American system where you spend blow $100,000 on a liberal arts education you can't use anything for. All my kids... I think you need to update that number. Yeah, well, no, I went to Vassar. Yeah, Vassar's now seventy. Yeah, Vassar's now seventy-four thousand dollars a year tuition reward yeah. where I went. Um, yeah, that's that's insane. That's like the quarter of a million dollars of education for nothing. And you got to go to med school or something. And you, all my kids, you know, four of my kids went to college, university, and they were, but they're all their first degrees or, or vocational degrees. I got you know an architect, two nurses, and a nutritionist out of it, and that's what you do. But okay, you finish later, but you're in a very different place. You know, you're Israeli, you're cockier. But what are Israelis? Israelis are Jews without the veneer of living in Chutzlarts. Because Jews are always Jews, but when you live in Israel, you don't have like, you, come, you live in Toronto or England, the most common word out of a Canadian or British person's mouth is sorry. You know, you get that veneer of manners yeah. overlaid. Not that Israelis aren't famous for their manners, no. but they're, it's like one giant, often dysfunctional, loud family. <clears throat> but it creates a very... It creates a very different kind of Jew. Like much, my kids, I see my kids are much more independent. Yeah, they often thinking they're invincible. They, a lot of them did the world, the crazy world tour stuff. Especially my twin girls did. I'm so glad I didn't know what they were doing when they were doing it. <laughs> you know, these insanely crazy tours of Southeast Asia as two yeah. girls, you know, running around like right. let's do it. Let's do a 25 day trek to the base camp Mount Everest with no guide. <laughs> you know, wow. like crazy stuff. But I see that they turned out. I'm very, very proud of my kids. They all are amazing. They're very independent. They do what they want to do. Um, you know, and they're they're all. Except with one exception, very happy with their career choices, uh, and yeah, I, I it was it's it's I was fantastic in that sense. Can can I also put in a plug for, for the difference between kids growing up in Israel in in terms of the depth they have on just issues and thinking and perspective and you know it, they I find at least with my kids like. They're thinking about life. They're thinking about meaning. They're thinking, you know, it's not just like who's the latest star on Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is. I mean, they, they care about those things too, but, yeah, yeah. but there's a depth to them. Yeah, but because life is, you know, I don't call it is real for nothing. <laughs> you know, being in the army here is a real thing. All my kids know have friends who, who've died in wars, yeah. you know. The army's a serious thing. It's life and death here. You have terrorism, what they've exposed to. Lived through, my kids lived through intifadas and, and the Gulf War, I remember, with the, with the gas masks. They were little. Some, the older, older ones were little then, but, you know, America, especially America, you live in. I mean, it's not as comfortable as it used to be in America. Anti-Semitism is becoming a very w real thing everywhere. Right. But you just, there's a level of reality. You have to be more real here and more grown up and more mature here so I think it just makes for better 
it's a, it's a builder of character, <laughs> just being in the Jewish state, even though it's quite comfortable now. We're not like the early pioneers. Since I've been here 40 years, everything's gotten better. I mean, you know, I remember there's like lousy ice cream, wrap, bad toilet paper, bad wine. You know, the service was terrible everywhere. You know, Israel still has a lot of room for improvement. But sure. if you've been here a long time, you see it's just like incredible. You know, it's like a, it's like a little bastion of normal Western <laughs> liberal developed advanced democracy in the middle of the worst neighborhood in the world. Yeah, so. yeah. All the years teaching at Aish. It was not just a job. You said you started in the registrar's office, yeah, and then ultimately you came, you became the authority at Aish on world history. I mean, if I, I if I may, yeah, yeah. It's not, not this, I'm not competing with anyone. There's no one no, else no, there. No, I'm just saying, like yeah. that was your that was your gig. Well, even that, even that, I never planned to be in Israel. I never planned to be a teacher. So what? what where did it go I just, from the I registrar's just ended office? Up, that was this job they offered me, like they, because I'm a kind of organized guy. And then from there, I went to running the outreach programs, like in the like discovery seminar, things like that. And then I started teaching a little on the side, and from there I ended up, and when the Soviet Union fell apart, I ended up running the, with, I, you know, being the administrator for the Ace Russian program with Efim Svirsky and Shalom Schwartz, which is where my Russian finally came in handy. Yeah. I did that for like five years. It was the hottest thing in the Jewish world, was dealing with, the, you know, like the now several million Jews from the former Soviet Union, a million of whom came to Israel. So I was running back and forth and to the Soviet Union. And, uh, and then I, I started teaching more and more. And I was doing a little like unofficial tour guiding on the side because I just uh, loved it. Yeah. And then I just moved into full-time teaching. And I, and I realized that, you know, history was, Jewish history was the great black hole of most Jews' education, including yeshiva guys, most of whom never even read Nach. It's, it's shocking. Not, not to mention Josephus. Yeah. I'm shocked at how many guys I talk to, yeshiva guys. I always ask groups of yeshiva guys who's read through the entire Nach, you know, everything from Yoshua onward to Divriya, I mean, from to Chronicles. And like almost literally no one, 99.99% yeah. of them read it. But Jewish history is so amazing, and I always figure it's the best way to teach Hashkafa, is world Jewish worldview, is history. And it's, there were very few people, um, you know, teaching Jewish history who are religious. And uh, and I this is I said this is a great niche market I love it it's really interesting it's a very powerful educational tool for for outreach and uh, and then I got into tour guiding also that's I also twenty two years ago I decided you know it would be great to have a tour guide on staff and tour guiding is just teaching history outside with better props <laughs> so actually Aish paid for my tour guides course it was oh, a really? they made back the money many times over with me yeah. guiding for everyone in the organization um, but I ended up doing that and then you know because there's also a challenge in Israel making a living you know teaching in yeshiva is not a high paying job right um, even though like Aish now is very mainstreamed as a legal legally doing everything a lot of yeshivas didn't do that you know I got it they were doing your pension and everything like they have to do but it wasn't it wasn't a great paying job I had to subsidize my income my expenses were so I ended up getting, you know, ended up moving to a part-time situation there teaching, combined with uh, taking time off the tour guide. And then I started doing speaking tours already a, long, a, quarter, a quarter of a century ago. I started uh, developing content and going on speaking tours around the world, which I ended up planning about 20, before BC, before COVID. Yeah. I ended up about 20, 25% of the year I was abroad, which really? is the best moneymaker. And you expect to go back to that eventually? I don't know. It's like doing the last, it's, it's kind of, I mean, I've, I have, I've had a very good shelf life. People speak, tell me that you can do this for 25 years and still have people bring you in. I'm already booked to do things. Next Pesach right. and Shavuot, are, those are easy time. I'm already going to the 
Bahamas for Pesach. Really? To be a scholar in residence. And I'm already Shavuot. You can always get a gig speaking. Everyone, I'm going to be in Boca. Um, but more than that, I haven't even attempted, attempted to read book speaking tours because it's just too complicated with COVID. Yeah. And who knows when it's going to return to normal. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I basically ended up doing a multiple different, they were all virtually the same skill set, which is developing material based on history and topics in Judaism and either tour guiding, speaking abroad, or, or uh, teaching here in Israel. Right. Where does the world of politics fit in for you? What, what, what role does that play in your life? Do you care about it? Do you just vote and not get caught up in it? Like, where, where does it fit in for you? I, mean, I haven't been, the only time I got involved politically was in the, after the Oslo Accords. Uh, myself and two other guys in Givad Zev, we founded a branch of Zohar Tzenu with, um, with uh, I'm spacing his name out now, I see his face in front of me, Moshe, oh man, I'm spacing Fagelin. his name, Moshe Faglin, yeah. <laughs> He was, he was arrested standing next to me multiple times in 1993 in protests. Right. Uh, so that was the only time I was very politically active. I was very anti the Oslo Accords, realizing it was going to be let's let murderers and terrorists back into our territory. We even set up an illegal settlement on, by the tomb of Shmulanavi, and the army came the next day and bulldozed it. We all marched out there. Um, and people have often asked me I should go into politics because I speak a lot on it. But I'm not. I said, I always tell people the only job I'd ever take would be the Israel ambassador of the United Nations. That's a job I would pay to get that job. Really? Why? Just so I could rip the hypocrisy of the world, because I know a lot of history. Right. And it would just be so much fun to not even bother to like, you know, defend Israel, because it's, it's hope, that's hopeless, because no matter what you say, it's, but just to just throw it back in their face constantly. I, I think that's like the best approach with it. But I, I don't, I follow politics tremendously. I take it to heart. You can't, in Israel, politics is very serious stuff here. It has huge implications, you know, for your security is always everyone's biggest issue here. You know, security is a very real thing between the external threats and the Palestinians and terrorism and everything else and Hamas and Hezbollah. So, yeah, I'm always following it. But, uh, yeah, I'm a member. I've been a member of Likud for, forever. <laughs> um, because I'm not, I'm not into religious parties. I've never been in. I think it's. I just think that they get corrupted and drawn in. It's always a desecration of God's name. And I'm a big believer that religious Jews should use their political power with through secular parties. Of course, we should lobby for what we want, sure. you know. But it should, I, that really bothers me that Israel does not have representational democracy. I don't have a member of Knesset that I can go to personally. But. Um, but that's that's the way I felt. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I think politics is very dirty in Israel. It's a mess, and it's very frustrating. Yeah, but but you. So you do get caught up in in it every time. I guess. I mean, I'll go out and campaign for people. No, no. I'm saying like it, it. Yeah, it, it very much draws me, and I follow. I yeah. follow that. I'm a, I'm a news freak. I'm always following the news. I'm always following current events. I do a podcast that's on current events, and history. So I'm always. You know, Quick I, plug. What's it called? It's called it's called Remember What's Next. Remember What's Next. Yeah, so just go Apple, Spotify, Google, you name it, it's on there. Um, I do it with a woman in Toronto who's a friend of mine who's stuck like, in it's an interactive show. We just pick a topic, you know. Yeah. I'm sure on tomorrow night we're going to be doing uh, something related to Afghanistan, Islam, right. Israel, the implications, just whatever's in the news and trying to draw it connected to history. Jewish. And you don't have to prepare. You're just like no. let's go. Uh, almost never. Thankfully, <laughs> and I just I just like Thankfully, I got a lot of stuff in my brain by this point. So uh, yeah, amazing. So um, you mentioned that your um, your 
very, very part-time in terms of Aish these days. So well, well, Aish, because of COVID, put a lot of their staff on unpaid leave. And then um, after over a year of that, they, they, it was mutually agreed they let me go because they owe me a lot of severance pay. And now I'm back uh, a little bit tutoring, but I'm not really on staff yeah. there at the moment, um, which may change, may not. I might decide now that I've, after 40 years in the organization that I want to move on right. and do right. something else. I don't know. I haven't decided that yet, but right now they're not offering, they're not asking me to come back on to be a staff member at the moment. So, uh, Right. So 40 years in... What would you have done differently with your uh, Aliyah experience? That's a really good, interesting question. That is, I don't know where if I would have picked to possibly live somewhere differently or... I don't know if I would have done anything different. That's a really good question. Um, you know, if, I, if there had been other opportunities, I, would have, I wish a place like Asia Torah had been more uh, multicolored right. so that I could have decided which community I wanted to be in because the transformation process that we dragged, you know, I had to drag our family through. Uh, you know, I became, I moved out of the, I, I, hate, I hate labels, but if you put a gun to my head and said, you got to pick, I would say Dati Lumi. I wear deliberately, I wear a black knit kippah precisely because I don't want to be like, it's one of those things, you know, okay, so the people, so the Haredi guys say, you're not really serious, you wear a black knit kippah, I don't know what that these <laughs> guys are. Um, but uh, the process of going through all of that, it's, it, it's interesting how I sort of weaned myself away from the Haredi world had much more to do with looking at the Haredi world of Israel and feeling that it was just too out of touch with what was going on. Yeah. And also tremendous, the whole, my, my, my issue towards the army was always, even when I was, when I first went in the army, I was, I was like, I would consider myself a Haredi guy. But I said, why should he die for me? And halacha, this is a Muhammad mitzvah. And there's no exemptions from the army. This is, we're fighting for our survival here. You know, why, I wouldn't want anyone fighting my battles for me. My blood is like greater than this person's blood. So, so that kind of stuff. And just realizing the, the lack of sustainability of the, the, that whole community, I just don't believe it. It's not the way the Jewish, as a historian, I can, the Jewish world was never like this. You know, and um, it's not really our topic now, but I tell people one of the newest versions of Judaism is the Haredi Yeshiva world of today. Yeshiva learning 100 years ago was 0.1% of the population did it. Uh, and you were Ameli Batora. You like lived, you slept in the yeshiva, right. had an onion, a piece of bread, and you didn't like you change your underwear once a month. And it was like, you know, this notion that everyone everyone goes to yeshiva today. It's not just Datulumi. It's I mean, it's not just Haredi world. Everyone spends a gap year in Israel now. I think it's great that everyone's learning yeshiva, but that, that everyone you have an entire world of literally, it's now becoming hundreds of thousands of people who are either directly learning or part of families where that's the entire what you're doing. Um, I just felt that it's not. First of all, at a personal level, looking at Israel, the country's not sustainable that way. Correct. When you get to the point where you're going to literally have like a quarter of the country not actively participating in a constructive way in the economy, not serving in the army. I mean, and, 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 and people start throwing, they're throwing back at me, well, my learning Torah is protecting us. I said, look, learning Torah has a huge impact on the world. But, you know, yeshiva guys today take two and a half months off vacation, bain is money. If we give the Israeli army two and a half hours off, look, God runs the world. He protects everything ultimately. But he show me a story in Tanakh where God says, you know, we're being attacked by a Moloch or someone. Go learn. You fight. It's a Mohammed mitzvah. You fight. So it just, it's just really clear to me that that's, 
it's not sustainable or healthy. And I believe, you know, the best, if I was running the state of Israel, I'd have a committee where we'd look at every single person and we'd decide. For you, there's definitely people I think should be learning in yeshiva full time. Sure. I think that's their greatest contribution to Kalei Israel. But because you were born in that family, a lot of these guys don't want to be doing that. You know, everyone should have the will, the free will to develop what they want to do and how they want to do it. And if it's learning, great. If it's not, you want to work, fine. But at least give people the opportunity. And I just personally, my experience living here 40 years, I said this is not, I don't see the future of the Jewish people in that world. And plus it's much too insular, reactive, and non-inclusive. We need to be outwardly focused. And I felt the Datilumi world, like the Garin Torani world, was much better, with the exception of like Chabad, of course. But in general, they were much more you know, uh, you know, connected to the larger Israeli society and much more in there. And, and uh, so I just sort of naturally gravitated towards that. But that's a process that I took my whole family on, you know, that my, my ex-wife and I and I, we went through together. We both kind of moved away from that world. And my kids went in, when my kids got to the age of the army, then my attitude changed dramatically. Really? Like I have, I have less than zero tolerance for some guy learning in yeshiva telling me, the army doesn't need me. My learning Torah protecting me. You know, I don't want to hear that stuff. I don't want to hear wow. that from anyone because my kids risked their lives. My neighbor's kids were killed in wars. And, you, and at least, and you're sitting there bad-mouthing. I'm not saying everyone's doing this, obviously. No. But bad-mouth the state. You know, make fun of the army. At least have a little bit of gratitude. You don't want to stand on your mat's mood because, you know, you think it's a goyish way of doing it. So learn to, learn to heal them in the merit of the people, the 25,000 people who died. Yeah. So you could be sitting here in peace and comfort. Like, like... Think independently. Have a little Derek Haritz, you know, for that kind of thing. So, Do you feel your kids uh, share that, that view? Yeah, my kids are actually, it's like they're, they actually, they definitely do. They definitely do. They're very, actually, they're, they're pretty hostile towards the Haredi world. A, well, that, lot, of, the, a lot of hostility towards it. That's a, the sad side of this issue. And it wasn't that, that they were raised far away from that because they really <laughs> right. pick up. Like, I'm going to the army. I'm giving three years of my life. I'm risking my life, you know, what are you doing? And you're not even, and you're just, and you're looking at me like, my girls who went, you know, my, used to walk to school and they were going to Tzfiyah, which is a very, very religious Tatilumi school, and kids are screaming out the windows at them, Goya, Goya, you know, you're right. not Jewish, you're not Jewish. And they're wearing skirts down to the floor yeah, and yeah, sleeves yeah. to here and up yeah. to there and because, yeah. but, because, but they look, because they're, ironically, Tatilumi girls wear longer skirts than Haredi girls. If a Haredi that's, girl that's wears right. a skirt below, more than a couple inches lower knee, they'll throw her out of school because it's, well, it's, it's a Tzioni thing. Well, like you said, it's not sustainable and it's, and it's not sustainable for the Jewish people to, to have such disunity as well. Yeah. It's not just the, the economic side that's not sustainable, it's the spiritual side. And so we just have to, we just have to try to, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have an answer. I don't yeah. have an answer, but... Uh, yeah, but that's Israel, you know? Yeah. And it's not just the Haredi world's guilty of it. There's every one of the Jewish world sister and, and throws negativity at each other. There's way, way too much of that. But, you know, the whole thing is, I always tell people this, everyone worships their differences as Jews. You know, minhag avotenu be'adenu. The customs of my father that I have, I got to keep. But I always explain people as a historian. I said, all differences amongst the Jewish world, be it genetic differences of Ashkenazim or Sephardim and pigmentation of their skin, 
or what kind of kippah you wear or how you read Hebrew are all the unfortunate byproducts of what's called diaspora, which is a punishment from God, which is over and over again explicitly stated in the Torah. Diaspora today is very comfortable if you live in Muncie and if you live in Pico Robertson, you live in Bathurst and something in Northwest London, but it's gullus, it's a punishment, and it's an amazing story that we survived that way outside of the land of Israel. But it's just a natural byproduct of separating Jews. The fact that we didn't splinter into millions of different religions and disappear is another yeah. amazing story. Yeah. But what we need now and the beauty of Israel and what we're starting to see, I mean, Israel is an experiment in progress. It's only 73 years old, 74 years old going on, is, is, uh, is, to, is to recreate what Judaism is supposed to be. You know, with authentic Jewish dress, strimals and kapatas are not authentic Jewish dress. A right. fedora was not worn by Moshe Rabbeinu leaving Egypt. To worship yeah. it as if it's like, besides being climat climatically, like completely ill-suited for this part of the world in the middle of the, you know, August now in Israel, to walk around with a wool suit on and a black hat, there's nothing in, I'm not ragging on Haredi dress. Well, what but is? But jeans, I'm saying jeans and a t-shirt are but I'm also saying, not. But authentic. I'm saying, but I'm saying, wearing sandals. Yeah, which right. you're, you go into a Haredi synagogue wearing sandals. Right. You know, oh my God, when I give you an aliyah, you know, Pretty Moshe, sure Moshe, Moshe were made wore sandals. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you, we have to we have to strip away what Judaism has evolved into and yeah. go back to what it's supposed to be. And there's so many layers of customs and rabbinic stuff on there. And Israel's that's what Israel's supposed to be about. And the key to that is, and the really the beauty of making aliyah is, you know, like in Navi, it talks about God said, I, I scatter the Jews amongst the nations like a farmer scatters seed. And seed is a beautiful analogy because seed, you know, sprouts. And it's been a great cross-pollinization. Wherever we have gone, we have greatly enhanced the cultures amongst whom we've lived. Literally, you could chart the rise of many civilizations and cultures by the teeny tiny number of Jews who are each little nuclear reactors, you know, being <laughs> like a little, you know, like hamama for a hothouse for like innovation and change. But it's also given Jews a tremendous amount of external cultural influence, which is also great because there's nothing, yeah. you know... Like, and just as modern Israeli culture of falafel and folk dancing is not authentically Jewish, neither are. One's Middle Eastern Arab cuisine and the other comes from the Caucasus, the folk dancing. The, it doesn't have to be you know, getting, we have to go dig up what, you know, most of the cookbook that the Jews were live, using in the Second Temple period. But we can bring all of those different things back, you know, whether it's the French cuisine or, you know, whatever we have that we... There's something to be said for bringing it all back in, mushing it up, and getting a really interesting... You know, hybrid, modern, biblical. Chalin or Chalint? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, whatever you want. But it's like, yeah. it's, that's the really good thing. It's an experiment in progress. I'm yeah. hoping that people will, that's where the country will move. But being part of it is pretty unbelievable. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. Despite the challenges, the thing we complain about when you're living in Israel today, you know, you complain about the bureaucracy, you complain about the this and the restriction. You know, but think about like your great, you know, a thousand years ago. Right. It's like me when I'm sitting in Russia saying, I'm going to, I'm going to Israel in a month. And these people That's waiting right. 10 years. Think of how many generations of Jews who came here. You know, when someone, a friend of mine who was, just passed away recently, a very smart guy, he said, you know, why is it that David Ben-Gurion merited to be the first prime minister of Israel? This guy was like a Bundist. You know, he was like a right. serious, he knew a tremendous amount of Jewish history and a tremendous amount of Tanakh, by yep. the way. He said, why did he merit to be the first political leader of a Jewish state in 2,000 years? You know, like of all the people, some big rabbi should have done it. And he said, you know what, if you read Ben-Gurion came when it was Ottoman Turkish Palestine, when there was typhus and dysentery and poverty and famine and war, and he would not leave. He was much cushier living in Europe at the time. In could the have easily century. Stayed. He could have easily gone back as a lawyer. He could do what he wanted, you know. He said, I'm not leaving. 
he loved the land of Israel and he wanted to be here. And God said, you know, you get this is the merit. You get to be here. You get to be the prime minister. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's... that's uh, and now we have how many million uh, prime ministers in this country? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you think of it. I mean, uh, Israel, it's unbelievable. The population has gone up 1,100% in 70 years. <laughs> Amazing. More than three times what the world's population has done. Amazing. There's only, I always say there's only yeah. two kinds of Jews, those who live in Israel and those who are going to be living in Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you may as well get here now when it's comfortable. Otherwise, you end up being at like Kabul Airport. Right. You know, on an emergency right. evacuation flight. And if American Jews, if they, if they think that's not going to happen, that's what a German Jew would have said in 1930. You really see that it yeah, as, yeah. as completely I don't parallel. know exactly it's going to be that. You know, no, but it's parallel, you're saying. That, that, there's no question in my mind the diaspora is shutting down. Europe is, 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 is really shutting down fast. And America, just what, think of what's happened the last couple of years, shootings in synagogues, anti-Semitism through the roof. You saw it during COVID. You know, it, it doesn't go away. It's only going to get worse. And, I under, and like I said, I, underst I understand how secular, totally disconnected Jews, who don't even, many of them don't identify as Jews, live in diaspora. I would have. I don't know how I ended up here. But uh, <laughs> I do not understand how religious Jews stay in diaspora. I, it's, it, to me, it's like at least if you, because you're business, you got a job. Don't go buy a, f a vacation house in Florida. You better be getting, don't buy a cottage and live in Toronto up north on the lake. You better buy a house in Israel, even in Beersheba. Better a two, a, you know, better a two-room apartment in, in, in Yerucham, yeah. in a palace in LA. At least you'll have someplace yeah. to go. And, yeah. You know. Okay, let's shift gears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rapid fire questions. Okay. You ready? Yeah. For the Spiro family, and for you, Kedem or Israeli grape juice? I like Kedem. My kids, my kids like the Israeli grape juice better, but I like Kedem because I was raised on it. And call. so in your house, generally, uh, it's Kedem or it's Israeli? We would mix it up really? okay, if I can get it. Although the Israeli is much cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, similar vein, Heinz or Israeli ketchup? Both. Both? Yeah. Either or both? I like actually Israeli ketchup is actually less sugar. Um, it depends what you're raised on. I, yeah. My kids were raised on that. I actually like Heinz ketchup better because I was raised on it. Right. But we have both. I have my refrigerator now both. <laughs> is there an Israeli food? And when I say Israeli food, I acknowledge that technically something like falafel is not Israeli. But, it is, but what we think of today as modern Israeli food, is there an Israeli food that you really love? So Israeli food I really love. I mean, I'm a big shawarma eater. That's, yeah, I mean, basically. And is there an Israeli food that you can't stand and have no idea why anyone would like it? Yeah, that, that, uh, that Mirav Yushalmi, when they eat parts of animals that are meant to be thrown out. Really? You go to a steakia and they give you like spleen and like you know, eyeballs. <laughs> I want to tell you, I love spleen. I love it. So we'll go out to eat. They you taste like little mine. round hot dogs. Not, it's not my <laughs> thing. Not for you, huh? Not my thing. Not my thing. <laughs> um, have you tried to do the Israeli Hebrew accent? And what are your thoughts on trying to adopt it? I have a decent ear. Um, so I, I, I make an effort to pronounce things correctly, not because, you know, because that's the way I am. I always do. And I, uh, uh, it's funny, my Russian accent is still better than my Hebrew. Israelis, my Hebrew is, is, is very good, but um, almost all Israelis pick up immediately that I'm not from Israel. I don't, doesn't, just didn't work, you know, in that sense. So, yeah. But I definitely make an effort. I don't like listening to people. I mean, some just don't have the ear. I have plenty of friends. I have a friend who speaks Hebrew with a perfect Mancunian accent. 
Right. You know, it, you, it's hysterical to listen to him talk. His Hebrew is actually better than mine, but his accent is ridiculous. He makes, just doesn't have the ear. He doesn't hear it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any pet peeves about life in Israel? Pet peeves about life in Israel. I mean, the major thing is that is is just in, is the Israeli disdain for listening to anything, mm. like the I between complete hefker like and 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 Swiss like conformity. I think would be a little better if Israelis <laughs> paid attention to. They just don't listen to anything. Like when you board an LL flight, everyone else in the world, I fly up to sixty times a year. Back in the day, yeah. you know, zone one, zone two, zone three. You know, they don't even bother with Jews because no one's going to listen. I find it a little bit annoying because it shows a lack of sensitivity to your fellow human being. Yeah, particularly on on flights. Yeah, a lot um, of things. It just like just please don't stand up until the uh, just like just not listen. Just like flight is just off. No basic Derek Harris is the big thing that gets me. <laughs> you know? What brings you to tears of of joy or pride in Israel? What brings me to tears of joy or pride? Um, Hatikva sometimes, depending on where it's being sung. Uh, yeah, the things related to the army give me a lot of pride, and Israeli technological innovation. I get very excited by that for sure. What's been better than you expected? What has been better? The wine and the ice cream. <laughs> Wait a second. You're saying there's an Israeli brand of ice cream the that ice cream, is really good? Israel makes decent ice cream. I mean, I think uh, it's fine, but, but I'm not fussy. It's a lot better than it used to be. Oh, okay. The so, wine, the ice cream, the toilet paper was all terrible. These people used to bring toilet paper and all the... Uh, the wine now is yeah, it's outstanding. Yeah, yeah. It's award-winning. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. The wine I used to be a big wine drinker before I was religious. When I when I drank non-kosher wine, and I'm happy to see that we finally caught up with you know that everything that Israel does when they set their mind to it, they end up being as good as anywhere else. Is that a surprise to you? Uh, uh, yeah, the army is the biggest surprise. I could never take Jews as soldiers seriously. It took me a long time to get into that, but also because my kids are soldiers, I don't look at them in the same way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was there anything that, that you thought would be easier than it's turned out to be? Anything that I thought that it'd be easier than it's turned out to be? Um, no, not really. I don't think so. You know, I would have, I would have liked to maybe integrate more into Israeli society as a whole, but because of where I ended up living, and you know, I never really, never really got in. And the thing I most regret of all. Was though my my conversational Hebrew is really good when it comes to academic Hebrew. Right. I, my thing I like doing more than anything else is public speaking, which I know for many people is their ultimate nightmare. <laughs> I, I think it's my most fun thing I like doing is speaking in public. Um, but I it, it's it's very very painful and comfortable for me to give like an academic talk in Hebrew. And the greatest regret is not completely immersing myself and reading more like novels and stuff to getting my Hebrew to the point because I'm sitting surrounded by half the Jews in the world and I can't effectively speak to them the way I'd like to. Right. That's right. the big thing. That's what I really would have done differently. I was really, really, really made an effort to immerse myself in the Hebrew. You know, reading newspapers, hanging out with Israelis. If I'd come earlier and done the army, I would have happened that way, but uh, whatever, it, it just didn't work out. What do you miss most about the place you came from? What do you miss most about New Rochelle, about the U.S.? Uh, I mean, it's an emotional connection to America that I always feel like I like. I love America, um, and the shopping. There's nothing like 
you know, retail in America is just unequaled on the planet Earth. <laughs> I still go every year multiple times to shop. Right. Consumerism. I keep, I keep a wardrobe in America so I can fly in with a duffel bag in my carry-on <laughs> with my tefillin and, f and just go shopping. Who do you keep it with? My, I, have, I was my parents. Right. My, my parents now live here. So right. my, aunt, my aunt and uncle who live in New Rochelle. Oh, okay. I have an entire bedroom <laughs> really? just mine with an entire, like, several weeks worth of clothing, wow. suits, suitcase, toiletries. I got everything there, literally everything there. I can just fly in with nothing. Well, that leads perfectly to the next question. Is Aliyah for everyone, including your aunt and uncle? I mean, ultimately as a Jew, yes. I think Aliyah is for everyone. I think anyone could live in it. The greatest thing would be, rather than trickling, I always jokingly say that the best thing would be, since there's about equal number of Jews living in Israel and living in diaspora, and America is a little less, I think, than Israel, I, would, I think we should switch them all for like a decade. And that way Israelis would learn manners and how to do business in a proper, competitive, capitalist, free market economy. And American Jews would learn about, would to love the land of Israel, speak Hebrew, and connect. Then we could bring them all back to Israel. And then we'd have, because trickling a few olimin at a time, right. the Russian aliyah really had a big impact, but trickling a few, it's like pouring drops of water into boiling water. To re, it's definitely had an impact, but it's too slow. I think that the best thing would be to like pour in lots of, in, lots of uh, olim to the country, and it would really do great things in every way for the country. You, you ever have conversations with, uh, with family and friends in the States about the possibility of aliyah for them? or only if they bring it up? I always push. I always, I, I'm very big on the whole the line about these two kinds of Jews. I always say it to almost everyone. I said, I say it more to non-friends and non-family, more to friends and people I know who are like still like, especially, especially to religious Jews living comfortably in the shtetls, like in, you know, in Teaneck and, and Passaic and places like that, who are thinking they could be able to stay there forever. Uh, but yeah, I bring it up, but not. I don't push. I, and basically, I know my audience is just like I don't push being observant among my family and friends who aren't observant. If they bring it up, I talk about it. But with the uh, people I really care about, I definitely push the making aliyah thing more than even the relig becoming religious thing. Because mm -hmm. I know, first of all, I just physically I want them to survive. You know, I know it sounds kind of scary, but get them out of get them out alive, and then we'll work on their souls. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Last question. Um, I'll ask the question and then I'll explain it. What's your magnet? And what I mean by this is that, you know, you, I see you have a refrigerator with all sorts of magnets on the refrigerator. So what is the magnet, the theoretical magnet on your refrigerator that no matter what happens here, you're staying? What, what's the sort of slogan that keeps you here no matter what? What's the sort of slogan that... This sort of slogan that keeps me here is when push comes to shove, this is the best place to be. There's no place like home, you know, like, but it's not just that it's no place like home, emotional connection. I know that ultimately that uh, it's more, you never know, had to pay as a slogan. I said, Israel is not a, is not a destination, it's a destiny. And putting together, uh, you know, how I understand, you know, how history works and how our, what we're about, there's no place else we're going to end up being. There's no, there's no place that we can, we can achieve our potential and no place we're going to ultimately be safe in. And one or another, willingly or unwillingly, all Jews are going to end up back here. But I'd rather be here because I want to be here than because I have to get evacuated to save my skin. Right. So, uh, but I appreciate that this is really, you know, like really that's, it's, it's a, uh, 
It's not a destination, it's a destiny. And this is the soil that you can grow the best in as a Jew. Yeah. Rav Ken Spiro, thank you very much for returning again to your uh, Aliyah story. My pleasure. And, uh, it was very, very cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to much more from you in the future. Amen. Thank you.